Okay, I think we'll get started. One day, maybe we'll live in a utopia where police officers aren't necessary to maintain a peaceful society, but today can a Buddhist be a police officer? If yes, isn't there a problem that they might have to shoot someone? If no, does this mean that today Buddhists must rely on non-Buddhists to be police officers? Uh, <clears throat> I don't see any problem with a Buddhist being a police officer. You know, um, Yes, it is one of those jobs where unfortunately there might come a time where you do have to use lethal force on somebody. Um, but, you know, and obviously any kind of killing is unskillful, even if it's in the defense of others and these kind of things. Um, but you can also do a lot of good as a police officer. You know, you can help people. You can do a job, a very hard job, and do it in a skillful way that most people actually couldn't do because it's not easy to do that way. You can live that job just like you can live any job with a set of principles and doing so, making sure that all of your choices are skillful ones. You know, you have to learn your training how to be a police officer. There's a lot of training and a lot of experience in terms of what you need to know how to do things in a skillful way. But that comes with the job. It's kind of like being a Buddhist monk. You start, you start out and you, know, you, you get better at your talks and as you develop your practice, you get better at explaining your understanding. So no, I don't see any, um, any issue with being a police officer. It's not necessarily about your job in this case. It's more about how you do that job. And I wouldn't hope for any kind of utopia anytime soon. Mm -hmm. 
In this time, in the world, how does a person work for causes they believe in and maintain their Buddhist beliefs? How do you deal with people who continue to be negative related to political views? Drop your political views. No. <laughs> you, you, can't, you can't help other people's political views. Um, you know, the, this first part of the question I'll, I'll handle. How does a person work for causes they believe in and maintain their Buddhist beliefs? If you feel like you need to, to do something, to work at a cause in some way or another, if that is something that you're driven to do so, then that's perfectly fine in doing that. Um, but what I will suggest is a couple things. First one is to know your limits. As somebody who was a very active politically in the past, I understand how you, know, you can you come into something with such enthusiasm and such drive and energy, and when you don't know your limits, you hit a wall, and <laughs> at that point, you know, it, it's tough to recover from that. So you know your limits. Don't have any expectations. If you have expectations, you're going to suffer. That's just in anything in life. But especially if you, like, you know, a lot of time, a lot, uh, this current political atmosphere, a lot of people feel like they need to go out and do something. Um, but to know their own limits and to know the limits of what you actually can do in the world and understand that with wisdom. If you don't understand that, you're going to hurt yourself and you're going to hurt others as well. You do this, any action that you should take should be with wisdom, with understanding. Certainly not with out of anger or frustration or any of these things. Your anger might be pointing you towards something that you feel like you need to do, but you don't want to ever make any actions out of anger, ever. Any kind of clouded mind will not lead you to, doing some, to do something skillful at all. Um, so you want to make sure that you are doing what you need to do without any expectations without any, with uh, knowing your limits, knowing and understanding what you're doing and why you're doing it. The reason why you do that is because this way you can continue on. No matter what happens, if you know you're doing something good and skillful and beneficial for others, you just do it. Don't worry about what might come of it. You know, people get very attached to um, the outcomes of what they do. Just if you, if you don't believe that, look at yourself um, when you hold the door open for somebody or when you let somebody in in traffic. And what happens if they don't even acknowledge your existence? You get angry about that because this is this society. They're supposed to be courteous and at least wave that they, you know, acknowledge it, <laughs> etc. Right? So we get really angry about that. But <clears throat> the key thing to remember is if you're doing something good and skillful, how, how other people react to that doesn't really matter. It doesn't diminish the fact that you're doing something good. So continue to do that. How do you deal with people who continue to be negative related to political views? 
sometimes you just have to escape. Sometimes, you know, I mean, there's some, you're not necessarily going to change the person. You're not necessarily, they are wrapped in this, these views at this point, and they're just going on and on and on and on and on. And you, you know, you can try to all, like, be some kind of wall and, like, go in front of them and say, no, stop. And they're just going to plow right through you. You know, so let the people do what they do. Watch your own mind. Take care of yourself. Um, you know, it, it doesn't, when you're around somebody who's very, very negative, it's not very pleasant. You know, somebody who's always talking about, you know, negative things or talking about how life sucks and all this kind of stuff, it's not really pleasant to be around somebody like that. Um, and so you have to, sometimes you just have to preserve your own, your own sanity and your own um, mind and, and at least take a break, I mean, you know, f- from that. So that's how I would say how you deal with that. And also, a good thing to do is to act. Instead of telling somebody how they should be, show them how it should be. Do it yourself. Be the, you know, like they say, be the change you want to see. So you are the, you put, you're more impactful on somebody by your actions and how you live than by what you say. If more practice is better, is the expected outcome for lay people, householders, coping with suffering and accruing benefit, whereas for monastics, it's liberation. Not necessarily. No, there's, um, you know, this is one of those kind of things, especially when people read the suttas, um, a lot of times they get this kind of feeling that, you know, awakening is just for monks and, you know, really letting go and all this kind of stuff. They don't know about Chitta the householder, who was a householder who had monks come and learning from him about the Dhamma. You know, they don't know about Anathapindika and all these lay uh, people who were, reached all levels, men and women, all levels uh, of awakening. Um, you know, it's one of those things that's interesting that I don't believe that in the suttas that there's, it, there is a, it shows a person, like an, an actual lay person who became awakened, like the final awakening. So that's, that's debatable, um, but at the it, it blatantly obvious is that you can a layperson can at least get to a non-returner, which means that this is your last life in in as a human or as any other existence except for you go to the a divine abode and from there you become awakened. So one way or the other, whether an awake whether a layperson can become awakened or not, um, a layperson can get almost to the end or to the end. So don't down yourself. Don't think that, you know, oh, why should I practice? I'm, you know, I'm a lay person. I have to, you know, I'm still, like a, the Buddha will say, he's like, a lay person is endowed with the five cords of sensual pleasures. Um, so, yes, a lay person, it depends on, it depends on how far you want to go. It really does. It depends on how much you want to let go. A lay person can let go of a lot. You know, they obviously, they can't let go of all the responsibilities and stuff like that, but they can let go of a lot. So what I would say is, 
meet yourself where you're at. Don't worry about, you know, well, can I go all the way right now? Where are you right now? Continue your practice right now. Watch yourself as you practice and you gradually see that you're letting go. There's lots of things to let go of. There's lots of, I, sometimes I answer questions, people ask, I have like children, How, I can't let go of my children. And well, I said, no, but there's like a billion other things you can let go of. You could, there's lots of things to practice letting go. Wherever you're at, keep practicing and don't worry too much about it. We're all coping with suffering. Even monks are coping with suffering. You know, sometimes the, the people donate a, like, you know, chocolate candies and we're like all excited and we eat the chocolate candies and then there's none and then we're like, oh, well that was still. <laughs> and, and that's only a minor thing of that, that we're coping with suffering. Everybody's coping with suffering. The, the, the point is to gradually, gradually, gradually let go until we let go of our suffering. It's the same handwriting. Actually, since this is the, it looks like it's the same person, I'm going to hold off on that for now. Let's see if I can get to Thanks, Monte J, for such an inspiring talk. You said that you have to let go a lot. Would you share with us some of your experiences of letting go? What has been the most difficult? How did you do it? Well, I guess I'll start out with, um, as a layperson, when I started getting into the practice, I started doing this thing um, where every six months I would do a purge. Basically what I would do is I would look at everything I owned, and if I didn't need it, and if I could actually let it go, I let it go. I gave it to people. I threw it away, whatever. I just lessened my baggage, lessened my, my world, right? I lessened all of that. And I did it like every six months. It was just something that, and it was one of those things where I can see that I was actually letting go and lessening my, what if you want to call it, footprint or whatever, less stuff. And when you do that, when you let go, you actually you start to feel just a little bit of freedom, a little bit of peace. Oh, I, now I don't have to worry about all this stuff. I can worry about less. Um, so that was, I, I guess, uh, something that I highly suggest doing. Um, you know, uh, depending on how much stuff you have, you know, maybe you want to do it a little more than every six months, but... <laughs> There's a lot of stuff to, but one thing that I, that I never did was I never, I observed myself as I was letting go of the, I could, there were some things that I, I just, I couldn't let go. And you know, I was okay with that. And I just kept it. And then six months, a year, two years later, oh, I can let go of this. So I would say just do that little thing like that allows you to practice letting go. A really concrete experience of doing that. And you're not letting go of you know, spouses and partners and kids and all, all these hard things that we get you know, attached to. We're letting go of physical things, of things that you know, we don't necessarily need. One of the interesting things, um, when I first came to the monastery, I was watching myself as I was letting go of my physical books. And I felt, oh, I was letting go of my books. I had all these books I wanted to, 
but my digital books were going shh. And then I realized there is such a thing as, as craving and, and, and being attached to digital things, right? So now I have this big digital library. It's not quite the same as the, like a physical library, but it's still an attachment, right? So you, you just see all of these things. And so I was watching myself letting go, but then not letting go because I was like, oh, okay, I can let this book go because now I have it digitally, right? So that's not really letting go. But at least I was seeing that, that I was, you know, I wasn't fooling myself because we, we really fool ourselves quite easily. And uh, it's too easy to fool ourselves. What's been the most difficult? Hmm. Well, I guess I would say in terms of me leaving, like leaving home to come here, probably the most difficult was leaving my nephew. Uh, my nephew is 12 years old now. I basically lived with and helped raise him from the time he was one to the time I left at 10. Um, and feeling myself as like, kind of like a father figure to him and, and really being there for, his, you know, for those 10 years, it was tough to leave. Um, so I would say that's probably the toughest thing um, for me that I let go of in coming here. Um, family in general, but definitely my nephew. And, um, you know, it was something that I knew that I had to do this. This was something I knew I had to do. And, you know, even after a couple of years, he still misses me, but he understands. Actually, last time I was home, I was meditating with him. I tried to teach him to meditate since he was like four. He was like my guinea pig. I was teaching him. And, and so I watched him go from like, you know, oh, ooh, this is meditation. This is interesting. And then a couple of years later, he's like, meditation? It's boring. I want to play Xbox instead. You know? <laughs> So um, I guess that's probably the hardest. My mom is getting older. I would like to move closer to her to support her. Not being able to find a job there is very, there is very stressful. Maybe I have some clinging or some personal benefit, but I think my motivation is as selfless as possible for an unenlightened person. Can altruism cause suffering? How can I reframe or manage this better with metta? Yeah, yeah, of course it can cause suffering. Um, you know, one thing I will say is the Buddha is very, very, very clear on how important it is to have gratitude for your parents. Extremely clear. There's this one sutta where Buddha basically says, even if you carried your parents on your, on your shoulders for years and years and years and, and they defecated on you and all this kind of stuff, it, it, it really, it's interesting. It's, even if you took care of them like this, you would still not repay them. So having gratitude and, and helping you know, your parents in what way you can is extremely important. Um, of course, you know, he does say the best way to help your parents is to get them to live a skillful life and, you know, even more than that, to meditate and all that kind of stuff. Um, but having them live skillfully is at least the, the beginning. So, you know, if your mom needs help, it's a good thing. You know, these days, it's, I would say, too many elderly people are kind of left to wait around until they die. And I, I saw it a lot growing up. I was around a lot of elderly people. 
um, and, and speaking to them and, you know, their family would visit them maybe once every month or two months or something like that. So if you can, be, you know, be there to help your mother, I say do it. Um, you know, we're always, you know, this is, is my, your motivations. Your motivations are always mixed. Until you're an arahant, you know, or until you really see your motivation, your motivations are mixed. You know, I mean, anybody can, uh, you know, there might be a part of you that maybe there is a little selfish reason why you want to do it. You, you observe that, you accept that. But if you, if you, and you examine what you want to do, if it's skillful, if it's beneficial, then continue on and, and do it. Sometimes when I meditate, random memories pop up in my mind, things that happened a long time back and I never had remembered again. Why does this happen and what should I do? You know, I've, I've thought about that and I've examined that myself. And I'd say that the deeper you get into your, into your meditation, the, 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 further, the further back you conceive how a, a thought arises. What I would say is that most likely there was something connected to that. I, I don't believe that that thought just arose out of nowhere. It arose because of a connection to something. Um, and maybe you were not able to, to understand and to see where it came from. But it didn't just come out of nowhere. As a matter of fact, our thoughts, you know, the thoughts that arise that come out of, you know, that come to your mind are pretty much your karma. You set the groundwork for them to come in the past. So, you know, maybe whatever this thought that arose, like random memories popped into my mind. Like, you know, sometimes like uh, something from the 80s will come up and then all of a sudden a thought will come into my mind that I, you know, from growing up in, in the 80s and then I say, oh, man, I haven't thought about that in forever. So there's, there's usually a, a cause for that thought. Um, I wouldn't waste too much time trying to track it down, uh, but just be aware of the thought. Examine, you know, the thought arises. What is the thought? Does it bring up any feeling? Does it bring up any, does it bring up a mind state, maybe of sadness, happiness, whatever? Examine all of that. And then you just let it go. You know, don't, uh, you know, if, don't try to attach to it. If you do, you can examine. There's, there's um, a phenomena that we have called golden times where we tend to look back to the past and put more positive spins to it. Like, oh, that time was the greatest. It was so good. But then if you actually r really look at that time, you're like, no, actually, I mean, there were a couple good times, but that time was really hard. But we usually kind of golden you know make uh, our past into these golden nostalgic eras and we want to look back at it as for like a happy pleasant feeling so observe all of that <clears throat> any chance of getting a copy of the last two dhamma talks we put them all online and uh, we'll uh, all both audio and video and um 
I'll give you the information uh, on the board in the Sangha Hall at the end of the retreat here. In some of the talks, there seems to be an underlying theme that enduring discomfort and pain is good, enjoying pleasure is bad. How is this different from the attitude of the five ascetics who initially rejected the Buddha when he took food? After first meditations in the morning, a craving has arisen in this body for food. After filling a bowl moderately and mindfully, this body begins to eat some of the wonderful food offered for breakfast, and as the food is eaten, pleasure is enjoyed and the craving ceases. During the day, a craving arises in the body for drink. If water is drink, start on the other side. Thank you, that's good. Pleasure is experienced and craving ceases. If the tanha is not satisfied, it becomes greater. From what has been read, if the tanha is not satisfied, Eventually, this body will die. Do not many cravings arise because the body is a mammal that requires nourishment and rest? What value is there in resisting the needs of the body? Um, you don't want to... You have to fulfill the needs of this body. You know, this, is, this is why we eat. We have to eat. Um, but when we, the, you know, when we do this reflection... And there, we're, we're reflecting on why we are eating. Not, you know, we're, we're reflecting on we're eating because we want to keep this body healthy so that we can continue our practice. Not be like, you know, like a Roman and lounge around and eat grapes and all these kind of things. And like just, just eating just for the, the enjoyment, the sensual enjoyment of it. So what, what I would say though is it's not that we are Enduring pain and, and discomfort is part of it. But um, I wouldn't say it's not about not enjoying pleasant experiences. It's about understanding them for what they are and making sure that you see that they are pleasant and then they're gone. The impermanence of them. And so the Buddha, I'll, I'll bring up, the Buddha wants us to examine three things in all of our experiences. The, um, the gratification, the danger, and the escape. He says that all these pleasant experiences, if there, was no, if there wasn't any pleasant feelings in these pleasant experiences, well, we wouldn't be enraptured. We wouldn't want to continue to do them. But that's that there is this gratification in doing these experiences. The danger is that they're subject to change. They're impermanent. And once you satisfy this, later on, it comes back. There's, there's no, like Bhante Panya, I think, mentioned this yesterday, there's no end to it. And of course, there's no end to it. As long as you live, you have to eat. You have to sleep. You have to you know, you, you know, go to the bathroom. You have to do all of these things to maintain the body. And so that, that's why, that's what the middle way is. Um, in that Dhamma Chakapavatana Sutta, the, the, the first sutta of the Buddha, he says, the middle way between two extremes. One extreme is like basic total hedonism, and the other extreme is total asceticism. The middle way. 
is what we're trying to practice. So that yes, things are pleasurable. That's fine. You don't have to whip yourself for you know having feeling pleasant experiences. The point is to understand them, to know them, and to see what they do, to understand your mind, your intentions, your body, how that all interacts, and what that leads you to do. Of course, you know, the, going back to, I actually like talking about stuff like, you know, natural selection, evolution, and, and like mammals and stuff like that. So I understand as well, you know, this is, in many ways, if we, just ate once and we were content for the rest of our life of course we would die right so we have to keep eating and so if we were so we have to keep having that craving um but we can examine it and understand it and let go of at least to the um the the stuff the extra amount of that craving um you know that can lead us to suffering of course, just having, having to be born and having a body is suffering to begin with because you have a body, you have to have these cravings and you have to eat and all these kind of things. Having followed the path of renunciation and surrender of all craving and desire, I can imagine what the monastic life would look like, but would a lay life in the world, what would a lay life in the world look like? Um, we haven't surrendered all craving and desire just yet. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what we want to do. I mean, that's what we practice. Um, you know, never think that just because you put on robes, all of a sudden, like, you shave your head, and then all of a sudden, you're, like, you know, this amazing renunciate, and, you know, it, it's a practice. It's another, and this is what I'll, how I'll answer this, is it's another level of the practice. Um, you know, you... <clears throat> When I became a, a lay Buddhist, I had no thought that I wanted to be a monk. But the practice, doing the practice over time, led me to the point where, you know what, I, I've gotten to this point. I think I want to go and take a leap of faith and continue on and go deeper and live a life that in many ways can be more conducive to allowing me to practice and to, um, and to reach for the goal. Um, now, of course, I can, I can guarantee there's probably some lay person out there who's doing a lot better job than me. <laughs> That's just the way it is. It, it depends on the person. It depends on their practice. It depends on what they're doing. Um, so what I would say is, uh, what would a lay person's life look like? Following this noble eightfold path that you're going to learn about these next two days. The Noble Eightfold Path is the perfect package for you to live your life by. And it covers all of those important parts, from your livelihood to your thoughts to your, you know, how you interact with society and with yourself, and then your meditation practice. So following that every day, you know, doing some kind of you know, meditative practice contemplative practice and not only just sitting while you're at work you know giving metta to people while you're at work somebody comes up to you and says something and then you exam you watch your mind as your mind you know reacts to it so you're basically making your practice your livelihood 
no matter what you're doing, no matter where you're going, no matter what, you can do this practice in some way or form. So that is what I would suggest um, to build up to, uh, especially if this is something, you know, if, if you really do want to follow the full path and go beyond just trying some meditation to de-stress and all these kind of things. Um, you make the, the whole practice your whole life, your livelihood. That doesn't mean that, you know, you necessarily give up, you know, you know, lose your job, let go of your job and let go of everything and become a monk. That means while you're in the world, whatever you're doing, job, family, wherever, you're engaging in your experiences through the framework of living the Noble Eightfold Path. So that's what I would suggest in terms of what a lay life would look like. When considering desire and craving, does the concept of balance come into play? Well, what I, I guess what I would say that um, in terms of balance is that understand where you're at. You know, the, the, you have desire, you have craving. You know, don't be too self-judgmental about about that. You know, don't be too self-critical about it. We all have that. You know, the, the the key point is to understand, is to really examine it, see what it does, where it comes from, where it goes. You're not, you know, you, you if you can't give up, like you know, it's Lent right now for for Catholics, I believe. Um, you know, and, and traditionally, like, you give up something. I used to say, like, I would give up video games, but I never did. <laughs> it was hard to give up back then. Um, but, uh, you know, so you practice the, the letting go, and you understand where you're at, and you understand that you're, you're not going to be perfect, and that, you know, you, you can't pretend like you're some kind of you know amazing uh, you know arahant monk out in the woods and all these kind of things so I would say that's probably where I would suggest balance um, you know in terms of that Can you speak a bit more on craving to be, craving not to be? Is this only to do with existing or not existing in the world? Are there other ways there these cravings might manifest that would be wise to explore? Hmm. That's that is quite interesting actually. You know, the, the like I said the the term that's used is bhava, and that means you know that's usually what is meant by when you hear becoming or rebecoming. Um, I like to use another way of translated as existence. So, I mean, I, I suppose you could say craving for existence. You could look at it as, you know, craving for something external to exist I assume you know something I want this to exist 
you know, maybe I want this perfect partner to exist or something like that. I don't know. This is, this is out of my league and I'm trying to think of some interesting stuff. I've never heard anybody else talk about these two um, outside of the box like this. It's quite interesting. Hmm. I don't know if I have any more answers. <laughs> so I would say examine it and see see what um see what other monastics and other teachers say. Maybe they might have some in, insights that are interesting. Is it skillful to meditate on with nature? Trying to simply observe listening to wind and leaves, watching a sunbeam move over time. Thank you. Uh, hmm. I wouldn't necessarily say that that's meditation in terms of the Buddhist term of meditation. I'd say that's kind of more of like a contemplation. Um, you know, a practice of being with whatever experience you're having at the time. And that's a good thing. That's a very good experience. That's something good to do. Um, and, <clears throat> you know, when, when you are with nature in this regard, listening to the wind and the leaves, right, this is when you can do these contemplations as well on, well, what's listening? How are you listening? What sound? You know, examining all of these aspects of this experience. Sometimes when you have these kind of experiences, one thing that's important to notice is that you might notice that there's nothing in your mind. Like there's no, nothing coming up, nothing harping you. It's just quiet. And if you notice that, it's like, whoa, sometimes people you know, the first time I noticed that in my own practice, it was like this amazing experience. And then, you know, as it tends to be, we, we, as we go through the practice, we have these insights and they're, oh my God, they're amazing. And then like a year or two later, it's like, yeah, I do it all the time. <laughs> so um, it, it's quite interesting. But I would say one of the things actually in, in my meditation, what I do is to, if, when I notice that my mind is quiet, I focus on that. And that actually helps me get into a, a deeper tranquility, a deeper concentration. So when you are in that experience, observing nature, being in nature, you know, turn yourself to your mind. Watch what your mind's doing. And also meditating in nature is awesome. I actually find myself, I meditate much better when I'm out there than I'm in here. I don't know why, but that's just the way it is. What is the difference between thinking and analyzing and meditation? Is it correct that we shouldn't be thinking but analyzing? If I analyze a problem in my life by asking why, is that mindfulness of Dhamma? Dhamma as phenomena, not the teachings. Well, what I would say is like when we're, when we're watching our breath, right? And we're, when, like when I said this morning, examining, watching it when we might breathe in long, breathe out long, etc. like that. 
you're trying to do this with just their basic awareness. You're not trying to do it with the, a cluttered mind of, of thinking. Oh, I'm breathing in long. Oh, okay, I'm breathing out long. Oh, you know, all these kind of things. So you, you're, it's, it's a nonverbal practice. Nonverbal in the mind, as it is. So when you're thinking and analyzing, that is, uh, I would say, probably another, another level of abstraction, another level of activity that's being added on to the experience itself. Because, hmm. And that's like, and that's during, you know, that, that's during when we're practicing our our meditation, you know, sitting on the cushion. But if we are just in our daily lives, if we're, we're thinking about we have a problem and we're analyzing it, um, you know, analyzing is part of thinking in that regard. You know, that you're thinking how to analyze this. You're thinking about the various parts of this. You're thinking about the intentions. You're thinking about where it comes from. All of these aspects you're thinking, and that's, you know, mindfulness or investigation um, of dhammas. I keep falling asleep or into deep fantasy states when I meditate longer than 30 to 45 minutes. I catch myself, but I'm curious about others' experiences. Does this fade with time? Or like so many things, will I just get better at it coming back to the meditation sooner for a more sustained period? That's a sloth and torpor. That is, basically what's happening is, if you're lucky enough to get to the point where your mind starts to get calm and peaceful, your mind is usually, your mind is trained that when you're in that mind state, you're about to fall asleep. You're, you're lying in your bed, you're ready to go to sleep, and you pass out. So what you're doing is you're trying to retrain your mind in, into understanding that no, you're not trying to fall asleep, and that's hard. Um, sloth and torpor is probably right now one of my biggest issues. Because I, I, can, I can get through a lot of like the restlessness and learning, understanding how to calm my mind and stuff. like The way I taught you guys today is exactly how I practice every day reminding myself to let go, to put down my burdens, all that kind of stuff. And that usually works for me pretty good. But then it's like... <laughs> and so, so that's, that is... There's no easy answer to that. And I, I'm still working on that myself. Of course, you know, the Buddha gives, gives advice as to how to handle that. In Mahamogalana, which is... You know, these two guys right here are the, the two... Um, the top... Bhikkhu students of the Buddha, Sariputta and Mahamogalana. And there's a sutta or a Mahamogalana who, um, you know, is, is a very famous, you know, monk. He's, you know, sleep. he's meditating and he's nodding off. And the Buddha comes up to him and he says, Mogalana, are you nodding? And he's like, yes. <laughs> and so then he gives him like, these various different pieces of advice. Like one is to... <clears throat> Um, you know, if you're nodding off, you like 
pinch your earlobes or you um you know what, what what's some of the other ones you like you imagine like light in your mind you do all these kind of things but some of the some of the other ones are um you know uh reciting dhamma so like you know we'll, just don't do that here like so we'll be all quiet and then somebody will be start you know so we don't want to do that but this it's reciting something that you've learned it doesn't even have to be in Pali, in English. So, but what it, something that is um, that gives you a desire to practice, you know. The, so these kind of things, and all, there's also, of course, um, opening your eyes, trying to meditate with your eyes open, um, doing walking meditation, and the last one that he says is, if all that other stuff fails, you go take a nap. So. You know, there, there's these, there's different ways that you can try to work with this. Um, and it's, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. Um, because just by the fact that you're starting to, to nod off or be in these deep fantasy states, you're, you're losing your mindfulness. So how can you be mindful while you're losing your mindfulness? That's the hard part. You know, there's been times where I've been almost about ready to fall into the abyss and I've caught myself, and I've seen that, and I've stopped. But that's been rare. <laughs> Mostly, <laughs> it's not easy. So examining the five hindrances is actually one of the, uh, the four foundations of mindfulness, which I'll talk about in my talk on Saturday. Um, Can you please speak about the defining characteristics of the Theravada forest tradition versus other lineages like Shambhala, Zen, and Insight? What is your take on spiritual materialism, taking, trying different retreat styles of Buddhism from one's primary practice? Thank you. Well, I would say that um, in terms of, you know, e even Theravada forest tradition, there's like six or seven different <laughs> ways you can go for that. There's a lot of you know, uh, defining characteristics. But what I would say is defining characteristics of Theravada forest is going back to the roots. You know, being, living simply, living out in the woods, out in the forest. The Buddha says, when he talks about meditating, he goes, goes to the foot of a tree, to a forest, to an abandoned house, these kind of things. But even in the Buddha's time, he talks about, he, you know, meditated and people built big halls like this for him and all these kind of things. So it wasn't like all the monks back then were meditating out in the woods. But so th this, this Theravada forest tradition is, tries to go back to the simplicity, also tries to go back to the, the words of the Buddha. <clears throat> you know, what we teach here specifically is almost exclusively from the four Nikayas. Majjhima Nikaya, which is the middle link, uh, Diga, which is the long, um, long discourses. Then we have Anguttara, which is the numbered discourses, and Samyutta Nikaya, which is grouped, like they're grouped by topic. So these four are actually found in all of these traditions. Tibetan, Mahayana, Ch uh, Chinese, Korean, Japan, they all have these four Nikayas. In Mahayana tradition, they're called Agamas. But so these four Nikayas actually stem back from a time before they were written down. They stem back from a time before there was Mahayana Theravada. And the reason why the uh, scholar monks now are, are 
examining the same text in China and in Pali, the Theravada, and these were written down separately because they were both came from oral traditions, and they can see that 90-some-odd percent is the exact same thing. So what we're trying to do, at least here, is to go back to those, to the oldest, the closest to the words of the Buddha that we can ever have. Some people will say these are the words of the Buddha. I can't say that. Nobody, I don't think anybody can really say that we know 100% these are the exact words of the Buddha. But barring some kind of miraculous archaeological find, that's about as close as we're ever going to get. So, um, so I would say that that's you know what what we try to do here is go back, going back to the uh, the root and keeping that alive. Um, you know whether it's in Buddhist countries or in in places like the West, where you know there's such a, a wide marketplace as going to the next one. Um, I don't think it's a problem trying all the different traditions, um, but what I would say is that you don't want to do that like for 20 years. You know, you, you know I, I, I have met people who say, I've meditated 40 years and I'm speaking to them and, you know, well, five years was in this tradition, five years was in that tradition. I tried this, I tried this. They tried everything. And it's like, you know, digging 10 holes one foot deep or one hole 10 foot deep, right? So th that's the danger of that spiritual materialism. But I would say in the beginning, it's important to do that, to kind of, to, to be honest with yourself and to, to, to learn about the different traditions and pick one or, you know, if you, if you can choose one, choose one that works best for you. Some people, maybe it's not in the cards that they do connect just with one tradition. Um, you know, maybe they do, uh, you know, have some kind of mix of things. And if that works for them, that's good. You know, we have to know that we, we try to understand that if the practice is working, is, are, are we learning to let go? Are we letting go of our craving? Are we letting go of our, uh, you know, attachments? Are we becoming less angry? Are we becoming more peaceful? All of that kind of stuff. If that's the case, you know, then, you know, each person, you know, has to take charge of their own practice and do it, you know, the way that works best for them. Where do memories of past lives exist before one develops the ability to recall them? It's a good question. Bhante Panya asked, answered this yesterday, though. There's no answer to this. <laughs> yeah, there, there's, um, there, there, you know, maybe in some later text they created some way of, of knowing, but there's no answer to it. We don't know. Pardon my ignorance, but I'm curious. Have there been fully enlightened beings since the Buddha? Are there enlightened beings on earth today? If so, have you met such a soul? And if so, could you share that experience? I don't believe I've met any awakened beings. Um, I've met some beings who are very, very strong in metta. That, that's an ex interesting experience. It's just, when you're around them, you feel this, this comfort, this safety, this feeling that they, they, they'll never judge you, that you're not, you're not being judged at all in the slightest. And it's an amazing feeling. 
that you know, almost I can only imagine maybe it's like being like a baby in their mother's arms or something like that. Like it's just a wow. You know, I mean, you don't know if the person's enlightened or not. I mean, who knows? But you you can have that experience, and it's pretty. At least for me, it was pretty, like, kind of like hitting a wall, and it was pretty obvious. Um, but yes, there were awakened beings during, after. And I do believe there are awakened beings today. Um, but awakened beings are smart. They don't go around with a name tag and a card and say, hey, I'm awakened. Um, because that's just dangerous. <laughs> you know, they, I, I believe that an awakened being, um, if they had the proclivity, they, they're teaching. You know, they are teaching. They're trying to do their best to, um, you know, share the Dhamma with those who are willing to listen. Um, but there's a danger for us to get involved with, you know, oh, my teacher's an Arahant, or I don't want to do, I only want my teacher to be an Arahant. Um, you know, there, there's a, a real danger to that. So, and I don't, time's kind of running out, so I don't want to get too, much, too deeply into that. But it's really a belief of, do you think that you can be awakened today or not? And for me, I can't say 100%, but I would say 98%, I believe that we can be awakened today. I don't think that it's some kind of, like I said, mystical, magical thing. Um, I, you can see it gradually as you go through the practice that you see how you've changed and you can see that this path is leading you down somewhere. You might not understand it fully or know where you're going, but it's leading you somewhere. How does coffee affect concentration and meditation? <laughs> what are your suggestions about it? Don't drink it. Don't drink. I'm, I, I might be one of the only ones who don't drink coffee here. Um, it's, I'd, I'd rather suffer from being tired and try to work with it than, than to drink coffee. Um, but then again, I don't want to be too judgmental about that because you know, for me, eating in general was my addiction for most of my life. Actually, I still have bad habits related to eating which is why I try to do my best to eat mindfully and, and make good choices um, remind retreat participants about the importance of noble silence and how to practice it the noble silence is practicing silence in your words your thoughts and your deeds so when you practice your noble silence, you're, you're making an effort to be quiet, not only what's coming out of your mouth, but how your body is moving around. Um, unlike me who was getting on here earlier and I knocked the bell and I went ding and all that stuff, that's not noble silence. <laughs> so being aware of what your body is doing and, and all that kind of stuff, that's part of noble silence as well. And, but the ultimate noble silence is what I was talking about, the silence in the mind. When there's no, nothing is coming up from the past or the future or did I leave the oven on or any of these things. How's my dog doing? How's my kids doing? No, it's total silence. And it's just peace. You know, that's, that's the beginning of noble silence for the mind. So when you have this noble silence, when you're practicing that, that actually is a, is a gain, is a benefit to your, pra to your practice and your development of concentration and your mindfulness. 
because when you're carrying that noble silence with you, like I said in my talk when I was talking about the mindfulness of eating, you're carrying that ember with you no matter where you go. And um, so I lost track. I went. I looked down to see if I saw it, but now I'm looking at something else. Okay. I see craving and self-building in most things I do. I barely post on Facebook these days. I think they're going to kick me out. I have to learn to interact with people in a new way or I may stop interacting. How do I overcome my hesitancy to react or respond out of concern for being unskillful? Um, Facebook is an awesome tool. And it's an awesome tool for you to understand your mind. You know, you, I'm on Facebook all the time. Um, we have lots of Dhamma-related activities on Facebook. The, all this media stuff, we're on Twitter and, and Google Plus and, and Instagram and, and all these. We have lay people who are we're a part of a, a media team and we all work together to make sure to have the Dhamma, um, you know, to share on all these different pages and stuff like that. And so there's lots of good, skillful things you can do with Facebook. There's also lots of unskillful things you can do with Facebook. And that's pretty much with any tool. Right? Any tool that we can use, we can use it skillfully or unskillfully. And so what I found at Facebook to be is an awesome tool in me learning, you know, I'll go on Facebook. I know you, I'm setting an intention. This is why I'm going on Facebook. And then I do it. And then somehow or another, 10 minutes is gone, and I'm, and I'm on Facebook looking at people's walls. And I, and I get to, and all of a sudden I have my mindfulness back, and I say, why am I doing this? Okay, and then I end, right? And so each time, it's a little bit better, a little bit better. And, and you know, so I say, okay, my intention is I'm going to go on Facebook for this reason, and then I'm going to leave Facebook. As, so you're setting yourself, you're, you're working with, you know, I've, I've met some, uh, some monks and stuff like that, monks who've been in places where, like, they restrict you to be on the Internet an hour a day and you can't do this and you can't do that. And they come here and then they're, they're like, downloading music and doing all these kind of stuff. Like, you know, for me, it's, it's like out of sight does not mean you learned how to deal with it. It does not mean how you learned how to let go of your craving. It just means it was out of sight. You weren't thinking about it. And then as soon as you had, as soon as Mara came and said, Facebook, you just, Mara got you enraptured with those cords and you were off to the races. So use it as a tool, you know. <clears throat> I mean, if there's absolutely no real good skill for reason to go on it, then don't go on it. Okay, um, so we're at, at 8 o'clock. I have a couple more. Um, I tend to go to drone on, and my questions last long. That's why I'm always at 8 o'clock and still more questions. <laughs> but um, So raise your hands if you'd like to continue on for a little bit more. Raise your hands if you'd not like to continue on for a little bit more. It's okay. You're not... <laughs> Okay, um, so okay. at this point, what I'm going to say is if you need to get up, you go to the bathroom, go to bed, go whatever you want to do, it's okay. You're not, you're not um, you know, being an insulting to me or anything like that. Please, 
um, you know, you're not trapped here. Uh, if you need to get up and go, please do so. Um, and I'll try to do my best to, to move through these in uh, a good time here. At a certain stage, the Buddha was able to recall his previous lives. In one sense, were they his if there was no enduring person? I can recall previous experiences. Others cannot access these recollections. Why can I, in parentheses, recall them if they are not mine? Does there have to be some kind of self stringing these experiences together? I would say no. Um, yeah, I think the answer is that they're just experiences. You know, they... Again, the Buddha doesn't go into detail about these things, but people have extrapolated and they, they speak about um, various, you know, things like what goes. One of the biggest things is, is this is kind of a roundabout answer of, a, of asking one of the biggest questions in, in Buddhism, which is, if there's no self, then what gets reborn? I mean, it's, it's a different way of putting it, but it's basically the same thing. And the answer is that there doesn't have to be an I that you know, this stream of, of mind, consciousness, um, this stream that goes on from life to life, it doesn't have to be an I. It doesn't have to have these kind of attachments. When, when he's viewing these, um, you know, these past lives, I don't necessarily believe he's viewing them with attachment per se. He's understanding that this is what he was in a past life. And this is how he viewed himself in a past life. And this is what he thought in a past life. Um, so I wouldn't get too hung up on, you know, did he think that this was an I or this or that. Um, and of course, others cannot access their recollections because they did not have that experience. If I punch myself in the face... I'm the one who's going to feel the pain, not you guys. Because, I mean, there might be some, like, psychosomatic, like, you know, what do they call it, compassion pain or whatever like that. But, you know, the, my experience is my experience. Now, as a, you know, convention, I say my. Well, I'm also not awakened, so I still do actually believe when I say my, it's, there's still my. Um, no matter how much I try to fool myself otherwise. But, uh, you know, so I say my, um, but the Buddha says my, I, all these kind of conventional words as well. That doesn't necessarily mean that he feels like this is a self, this is me. Um, this was, this is experiences that are part of this web of experience that goes back however long, he, you know, even beyond. I think he said he went back 90 eons and there were still more. You know, so who knows how long. But you can recall them because they're part of your experience. The danger in neither pleasant nor unpleasant Vedana feeling. I don't understand. I hear our brain filters out 99% of sense events. You know, I've heard that as well. Actually, I heard a monk say that a couple years ago, and I tried to like look it up online. I couldn't find it, so I don't know how accurate that is. Um, but it kind of makes sense 
Because if we, if we, in our mind, if we concentrated on every experience, just think about all the things that you can see and experience in this room. It's like almost infinite. You know, you could say, okay, this is a microphone. Well, then there's this part and this part and this part, and these are made of atoms and all. I mean, you, you can go nuts with these kind of things, um, experiences. Um, so we, we don't, you know, in that regard. Is it even possible or beneficial to be mindful of all of them? No. <laughs> no. Just examine what's coming up. See, this neither pleasant nor painful, otherwise known as neutral, you know, these feelings are, two examples of neutral feelings are the breath and the feet while we're walking. Right? That's the reason why we concentrate on those is because they're neutral feelings, because we normally avoid them, because our, our mind basically filters them out. Like if you, you know, if you go to a farm or whatever, you go live on a farm at first, you're like, oh, all these smells, like, you know, a month, two months later, you don't smell any of it because your nose filtered it out, right? So you're, you know, all of these things are being filtered out. So you pay attention to what is in your field of experience. And in doing so, when we pay attention to while we're sitting, paying attention to our breath, while we're walking, pay attention to the bottom of our feet, we are learning to pay attention to something that we don't pay attention to at all normally. And so that helps us build our concentration. What is the role of the Dalai Lama in Buddhism today? Um, officially, he's the religious head of one sect of one type of Buddhism. Um, that pretty much officially is his ending role um you know it's a, a common in the west to think of him as like some kind of buddhist pope or something like that um but there actually is no buddhist pope one of the most amazing things about <clears throat> this tradition and, and the buddha <clears throat> is that when he was dying when he was you know his parinibbana going you know ending his final life he was asked well who's going to take over and he said no one will take over the Dhamma and discipline that I've taught you is your teacher. So he pretty much set right then and there that there wasn't going to be any Buddhist pope. Now, of course, if you go to like places like Thailand, there's this like high puba monk or whatever. You know, they, people have like created these kind of you know hierarchies and stuff like that. Um, but uh, you know, the, to the Buddha, that wasn't um, you know part of how he uh, wanted this to be. So there is no, you know, each tradition, and even in each tradition, like, you know, they, we follow the vinya, we follow the, the monastic rules. You know, every monastery, in a way, is kind of like a free agent. You know, and we follow these vinya rules, and, you know, some places, like, you go to, like, a Thai forest place, they have certain, you know, rules that they follow because they're from the Thai forest tradition, um, these kind of things. But for the most part, it's just the vinya. So what I will say, though, is that I think the Dalai Lama played an important role in bringing awareness of Buddhism to the West. I mean, if I used looked my own experience for that. My first experience with Buddhism was the Dalai Lama. This 
happy monk on the TV laughing and smiling and he's got nothing and he lives like a monk. And I thought to myself, well, what, what's going on with this guy? What is this? You know, um, which is one of those things, actually, years and years later, seeing monks, you know, like the Dalai Lama is kind of what led me to, to want to take this practice on as well. So, uh, so I will say that he's, in, he's important in, in helping to bring Buddhism to the West. Uh, basically, actually, anywhere in the world where there isn't Buddhism, but to the West. Will all the talks and Q&As be available online? Yes. Oh, that was an easy question. Good. <laughs> okay, now we're back to the, the same question here, the three-pager. The procedures for some meditation techniques seem to include explicit verbal contemplation. For example, in metta meditation, we might be instructed to think, may we all live in friendship with one another? The procedures for other meditation techniques seem to discourage any verbal contemplation. For example, in mindfulness of breathing, we maintain pure awareness of the breath without intentionally verbalizing any thoughts. The question is, is it possible to group all meditation techniques into two categories? Those that require explicit verbal contemplation and those that don't. Is there any reason for why some meditation techniques require verbal contemplation and others don't? Let me just answer that. Um, even with mindfulness of breathing, you know, there's actually you know, a Mahasi tradition um, you know, in uh, Burma, they do noting. So even while you know, they're you know, breathing in, breathing long, you know, feeling, 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 thinking, thinking, thinking. So that's not even necessarily um, true universally when it comes to mindfulness of breathing. Um, if yes, is there a reason why some meditation techniques require verbal contemplation and others don't? I would say uh, the example for metta, actually f with metta, the words and the visuals are a tool getting you to a feeling. The words and the visuals are not the end-all, be-all of metta. You're using the words to develop a mind state and a feeling that arises. And that feeling is what you're concentrating on, what you're trying to develop. If you practice metta long enough, sometimes you don't even have, you can just skip the words and the visuals and just go right to the feeling and just bring it up. Um, <clears throat> so... The words and the visuals are uh, in metta are tools towards bringing. And then once the feeling, you don't need the words and the visuals. You have the feeling there. Um, if no, why does it seem like these categories are possible? For example, in verbal contemplation, only ever meant to be like a booster rocket that one discards once entering into the orbit of experiential understanding. I don't know if it, like I said, I think it's probably meditation techniques, even within one tradition of Buddhism, are so varied that it's hard to try to categorize them into just these, you know, just these two. Um, but it, they also have, you know, something like metta can be used to enter jhanas. Um, and you do it, as I said, you know, using that feeling to develop that, yeah, um, you know, tranquility and, and peace and quiet of mind and, and, and leading into concentration, that kind of stuff. But stuff like, say, um, 
contemplating the 32 parts of the body or charlotte ground contemplation there's lots of different contemplations as as i'll go over briefly in, in my talk on saturday that are not that are there to support the practice that are there to support your mindfulness and they're done in a variety of different ways um But ideally, when you're doing the walking or the sitting, or even when you're just maybe doing something out in the world and, and you're able to examine just the intention in your mind, just the thoughts, just examining them without a lot of extra clutter, then that's important because that's allowing you to, to see deeply. All of these other, all of these other tools in the four foundations of mindfulness, it's a tool to allow you to develop that concentration, to keep that mindfulness going as you're doing all kinds of things in your life. And that allows you to keep your, keep your mind primed for concentration so that you can see deeply. And seeing deeply is what we want to do. And we'll talk about briefly in, in, you know, in the jhanas on Saturday, you know, in the beginning of the jhanas, there's thought and examination. After the first jhana, that goes. You use the thought and examination to get into the jhana, but as you're getting deeper, that drops away. So, I guess that's my answer to that. And we didn't go over too long. That's good. Only 13 to 14 minutes. So, Thank you, everybody. We can take a break and come back to finish out meditation for the night.